Well, let's pray as we think about those passages and those chapters which surround. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, please uh, help us to have clear minds and open hearts and a willingness to accept and take on board what you have for us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. People are often pretty free in their dishing out of advice. Parents often give us advice and as parents we often give advice. You know, parents of a teenage son might advise their son, son, you really would do better in social situations if you wore your deodorant. Something people, teenagers apparently want to resist. Teachers dish out a lot of advice as well. You know, don't leave your study until the night before. Don't do your assignment the night before it's due, etc. Songs are full of advice. You ever listen to the radio, listen to the songs and realise that half of them are telling you what to do, what to think or, or what to, you know, believe. Um, you know, how will you know if he, if, you love him, if he loves you so? That's the question. The answer is it's in his kiss. That's where it is. That's what Cher sung a number of years ago. There was a song which was Everyone is Free to Wear Sunscreen, which you might remember from a few years back. That was wall-to-wall advice from Go to Woe. Magazines give us advice. Uh, Clio Men's Health, very popular with the 8 o'clock service, those two magazines were. Yeah, they're full of advice. I saw the cover of one particular magazine, it wasn't Clio or Men's Health, and one of the headings on the front cover of this glossy magazine was, Nag him and he'll be on your side. Now, word of caution, just because something qualifies as advice doesn't mean it's good advice, and I'd suggest that probably isn't really good advice, which alerts us to the fact that there are two sorts of advice. There's good advice and there is bad advice. Have you ever been on the receiving end of some bad advice? Uh, French once relayed to me some advice allegedly given to a friend of his by his friend's father. Now, I I don't know whether this story is true, but it's a good story, so let's just assume it is. My friend's uh, friend's father, you can imagine him taking him aside, sitting him down in in an emotional moment of father-son intimacy, and he says, look, son, remember this. Whatever you do, don't let your wife get in the way of your mates. Don't let your mates get in the way of your football and whatever you do, don't let your football get in the way of your beer. Life advice, I would suggest not very good life advice. But sometimes uh, bad advice can be uh, very serious, particularly in the area of bad theological advice. The following story I'm going to relate to the best of my recollection. But a few churches ago I went to a church uh, and there was an older gentleman whose wife had passed away. He was clearly grieving and apparently this older Christian gentleman reflecting on the death of his, I think, church-going Christian wife uh, said something like, you know, at a time like this I remember the words that a minister once told me, you can never really know if you're saved. That was the message which came back to him. You can never really know if you're saved. That was the words that came back to him as he reflected on his Christian wife's death. Now, I don't really know uh, whether he misheard that minister from all those years ago or whether the minister actually said that or whether he misunderstood him or what was going on. But whatever the background, what an incredibly unhelpful thing to have lodged in your mind as you grieve your departed Christian wife. Now, see, the Bible gives great assurance, for example, that if someone has asked Jesus to forgive them and has resolved to follow Jesus, they are guaranteed 100% eternal life. Not because they deserve it, but because what have Christ has done? And if my believing wife passes away before I do, I will take great comfort in that assurance. 
How horrible to have something quite the opposite of that in your heart or in your mind in your time of need. Well, this morning we're going to look at how um, Job receives some bad theological advice. It's bad because it's wrong and also because, in effect, the advice he gets is very cruel. Uh, Job is on the receiving end of it. And uh, it's actually tragic that today there are many contemporary versions of this same sort of bad theological and, in effect, cruel advice, as we'll see. So it's good for us to identify the bad advice Job got, to recognise bad advice when it may come our way, so that when we do find ourselves in times of suffering, taking on board the bad advice won't make a hard situation harder. So, we're looking today, uh, we're continuing our series in Job, we're looking at Job chapters 4 right through to 28. Now, I'm not going to do all you know, 25 chapters or whatever it is, I'm just going to take selections of it, but the topic is cruel theology and an outline of the three main points are on the screen behind me. Firstly, we're going to think about how Job's three friends come to help. Then we're going to look at, secondly, their, his friends help, in inverted commas, because they actually aren't very helpful. And thirdly, we're going to see Job's response. And in the process, we're going to be able to identify bad theological advice so that we won't be taken in or, or unhelped by it as well ourselves. Now, just by way of quick background, if you've been here in recent weeks, you know uh, that a few chapters ago we read that Job, uh, who was a very good man, not perfect, but very good, experienced a series of horrible disasters. His children died, many of his servants died, uh, his business fell apart, his health collapsed. And uh, we also know from the early chapters of Job that God in his sovereignty allowed this to take place, but that it was not repeat not, underline not, because Job sinned any worse than anyone else. He's not suffering because he's a particularly bad sinner. It's got nothing to do with that. The level of Job's sin or otherwise is irrelevant to what he's experiencing. And in fact, we get the impression that if you were going to suffer in proportion to your sin, Job would get away almost scot-free because he was a good man. So just do remember, he is not suffering because of his sin, that's made very clear in chapters 1 and 2 of Job. So let's move on and look at the three friends come to help. Back in chapter 2, we read that three guys, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, come and visit him. You get the impression that they've travelled some distance and they, we're told to stay with him a number of days. And with you and I would know that it's good to visit family and friends when they're perhaps sick or grieving or going through a tough time it can be good to visit them. And these three men, to their credit, go to great effort to visit their friend Job. But when they see him, they get something of a shock when they see the extent of his suffering. And the passage says in chapter 2 that they in fact sit with him in silence for seven days. And it's been commented by many people that sitting in silence for seven days with Job was probably the best thing that these friends actually do to help. Um, I recall when I was a younger man, my father... Um, there's a gentleman who lives across the road from us where we grew up who got cancer which proved to be terminal cancer and uh, this guy across the road one, or two of, one of his friends who lived up the street couldn't bear visiting him anymore he found it too hard but my father um, who lived across the road from him would go and visit him and on certain days he would go and visit this man across the road and he wouldn't say anything because the guy was in you know, pain just, he'd just sit with him he just sit with this poor man as he was suffering and I believe that my father just sitting with this guy was of great comfort to the man and, I might add, the man's wife who was also suffering at the same time as I'm sure you'd appreciate. 
So, um, you know, this is what Job's friends, they come and, uh, and they sit with him. But then the three men start to speak. And chapters 4 to 28 set out the exchange which takes place between Job and his three friends. The friends each speak in turn and Job replies to each of them. You can see the structure of it on the screen behind me. So in chapters 4 to 5, Eliphaz speaks and then Job responds. Chapter 8, Bildad speaks and then Job responds. Chapter 11, it's Zophar who has a go, Job responds. Then the three of them speak again and then the first two speak again. Now I heard of a minister who would regularly pray that before he went to visit those who were suffering, he would pray a prayer along the following lines. It was something like, dear God, please help me not to say anything really stupid. Now, not the deepest prayer, but perhaps it's not a bad prayer to pray before you go and visit someone who's suffering and we quickly learned that that is certainly a prayer that Job's three friends could very well have prayed. Because now we're going to look at the friends' help in inverted commas. Job in chapter 3 conveys the extent of his grief and suffering and deep, deep despair. He curses the day of his birth. He says, why was I, in bo- was I born? I have no peace. I'm in turmoil, etc. And then in chapter 4, his friends start to help him. But his three friends, in effect, say the same thing over and over again in different ways. Their comfort for Job is, Job, you're getting what you deserve. Repent. That's their message. Job, you're getting what you deserve. Repent. Eliphaz is the first to speak in chapters 4 and 5 and he's been described as something of a gentle mystic type person and he starts quite sensitively. Uh, He commends at the beginning of chapter 4 Job's many good works. He says in verse 3, Think how you've instructed many how you have strengthened feeble hands. You know, he, he starts by pointing out the good things which Job has done. But then he, in effect, in a very polite way, starts to say, you're actually getting what you deserve though. Look at verse 7. Eliphaz says, Con- consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble... Reap it. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying, really, you must have done something really bad. You're getting what you deserve. And he makes similar comments in chapters 15 and 22. Now, I'm sure you've heard the phrase people often utter in difficult times. They'll say something like, what have I done to deserve this? That is the idea, or that that statement is premised on the idea that we get get what we deserve. If if we experience something bad, we must have done something bad to deserve it. Well, that's what Job's friends assume must be the case with Job. He's getting what he deserves. And so we're doing the wrong thing and we're getting the the consequences of it. The solution is, of course, that we should repent. And so that's what they say Job should do. You should repent the things you've done which have caused this. And so in chapter 22, a bit later, Eliphaz says to Job, Submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. The idea is, if you repent, all your prosperity will come back. So imagine how Job would hear this. He's basically hearing the message that, okay, so you're saying my kids have died because of my sin or because of their sin. My servants have died because of my sin or their sin. My business has fallen apart because of my sin. Uh, my health is failing because of my sin. What, that, that is quite a burden to lay on someone, isn't it? I mean, even if it was true, it would be a burden to lay on someone. 
is only going to devastate a suffering person further. But we actually know from chapters 1 and 2 that it's not why he's suffering. It is entirely wrong. His suffering has nothing to do with his level of sin. You see, Job's friends seem to have a pretty simplistic outlook on suffering in the world. Uh, I know a minister who was once asked, once said that whenever he's asked about suffering, he'll say, that's a good question you've raised with me, why don't we make an appointment for a couple of hours where we can sit down together and, and talk about it? What he was trying to convey was, is that the Bible's teaching on suffering is not simplistic, it's not straightforward, it's not just, you can just roll it off the tongue in about, you know, half a minute. The Bible's teaching on suffering is quite nuanced, it's quite complex, uh, and, uh, it, but it's, it's there. So, for example, you might reflect on suffering and think, sure, okay, we know why there's suffering in the world. Suffering in the world is ultimately there because of human sin, Genesis chapter 3. And that's fair enough. But the question then becomes, why does it seem that some people get it and some people don't get it quite as much? Why is it so unevenly distributed? Why do the good seem to get it worse than the bad? The bad sometimes seem to get up almost scot-free. See, the Bible, if we read it through, we'll see that sometimes God allows suffering and sometimes he prevents it. The Bible will teach us that sometimes certain forms of suffering actually are the result of sin. But many forms of suffering have nothing to do with a person's particular sin. Sometimes we may know the reason for our suffering, but I would suggest that in most cases we won't have any idea while we're suffering. Sometimes God will remove suffering when we pray about it. Sometimes he won't. You see all these options, you know, they're on these combinations of these situations that we could have. People's experiences of suffering are so varied and they can be so intense. Now, amidst all this complexity, there are, I think there are two overriding truths which are of incredible comfort. That is that Jesus has suffered and understands suffering. And secondly, that Jesus will one day return and eliminate suffering for his people. And there I think they're the two things we cling to. But here on earth, often there are no Simple, trite answers to suffering. The Bible's teaching can be quite nuanced and complex as we seek to apply it. Yet, Job's friends keep on dishing out for chapter after chapter the you get what you deserve advice. If you're good, good stuff will happen. If you're bad, bad stuff will happen. If bad stuff's happening to you, repent of your badness, be good and good stuff will start happening from then. Bildad, just to give another example, uh, says to Job in chapter 8, Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Now that's encouraging, isn't it? Imagine one of your child children dies and some Christian comforter comes up to you and says, you know why they died? It's because of their sin. I mean, can you imagine ever saying that to someone? That's what Job's comforters say to him. What a devastating thing to say. Bildad similarly urges Job to repent in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 8. Zophar also, and I could give examples, says you get what you deserve, you need to repent. You can summarise his friend's advice for chapter after chapter as simplistic, unhelpful, wrong and in practice cruel. Now there are versions of this sort of cruel, incorrect understanding of suffering around today. The you get what you deserve view the idea that if we're godly enough, suffering will go away. That theology is still around. A good example is uh, many Christians argue that if you're sick and you pray with faith, repent, you'll be healed. A simple internet search will reveal to you how widely held this viewpoint is. I'm not going to name names, but I did a bit of a search during the week. One uh, Australian church declares, we are confident that healing is for everyone. 
He then lists certain scriptures and said, declare these scriptures over your life and believe for healing. Well, that's not right. One American church leader, prominent person, said, it's God's will to heal you because healing is in his redemptive plan. And then go and set out sorts of good things you should do to sort of get healed or the praise you should pray or, or prayers you should pray or whatever. I mentioned a few weeks back and I'll mention it again but it's a good example. I know of a Christian Paralympic athlete uh, wheelchair bound, uh, that was her, one of her sports, she was a wheelchair sportswoman and her pastor told her that if she went to a healing service, Christian healing service, that she would walk again. This girl went along, didn't end up walking, the pastor's assessment for this girl was that you haven't prayed hard enough, you haven't been good enough, you haven't tried hard enough, you haven't been, you know, whatever. The girl was apparently shattered, fortunately a wise Christian who I know uh, eventually was able to correct this misunderstanding for this woman. You know, that the pastor sadly had a simplistic, incorrect view of Christianity and suffering. So let me emphasise, suffering is not necessarily because we deserve it. We don't suffer because we're more sinful than others. I mean, maybe we are, maybe we aren't. It's just not necessarily relevant. Secondly, repentance, prayer and a strong Christian life will not necessarily take away the suffering that comes our way. I'm sure it'll help us to deal with it better but by repenting really hard and by being a really strong Christian doesn't mean that we can avoid suffering or that we'll go when it comes. It's not how it happens. So I guess the thing which we should take away from this is we need to, I guess, rid ourselves of simplistic views of suffering, particularly the view that you suffer because you deserve it. And we need to ensure that when we're giving advice or comfort to people who aren't suffering, we don't convey some sort of simplistic pseudo-Christian worldview. Now, if you want to think further about suffering, clearly going through Job as we are this term will be helpful. There are also a couple of good books which I could recommend um, you could look at if you wish to. One is by a guy called Don Carson called How Long, O Lord? Some of you may have read it, very helpful book. Slightly shorter one by John Dixon, If I Were God, I'd End All the Pain. Uh, Two helpful reflections and, and analyses of the Bible's teaching on suffering. Well, that was the friend's help. Let's look at point three, Job's response in these chapters. Now, throughout chapters 4 through to 28, Job, in in some ways, is remarkably consistent. Yet, in other ways, his thinking actually develops a bit. Now, I I suspect that probably most of you haven't read chapters 4 to 28 during the week. Maybe you will. But some things about Job stay the same throughout these chapters. Some things change. What stays the same? Well, really, his grief and pain stays the same. You would have heard at the start of the second reading, uh, Job says, If only my anguish could be weighed, and all my misery placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. He was grieving in chapter 3, he's grieving in chapter 6. By chapters 27 and 28, he is still grieving. It hasn't gone away. His suffering is ongoing and prolonged, like many people today, Christians, whose suffering is ongoing and prolonged. It may be a lifelong living with chronic pain. It might be an extended period of persecution. It might be grief over something rather which lasts a period of time. It may be some mental health condition which goes on for, for month after month, perhaps year after year. Uh, sometimes these things are, are, are ongoing, like Job's. And for also throughout these chapters, we see that his friends continue to be as of no help. He says in chapter 6, My brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams. And they're just as undependable in chapters 27 and 28 by the time we get to there. And Job maintains his belief in his innocence. He he says, look, I'm not getting this because I'm worse than anyone else. That can't be the reason. 
He says in chapter 6, show me where I've been wrong. He's saying in chapter 27, I will maintain my innocence and never let go of it. So these things remain remarkably consistent. But lest we think chapters 4 to 28 have gotten us nowhere, that there's some sort of spiritual version of much ado about nothing, some things do change for Job. I was reading one writer who notes a change, change of tone in Job's attitude from chapter 13. Now, once again, you'd have to read it all through to sort of pick this up and see whether you agree. But this writer says that from chapter 13, Job believes that in the long term he will be vindicated by God. So in chapter 13, verse 15, he says, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. And a few verses later, he says, I know I will be vindicated. So from chapter 13, this writer says that Job starts to display a tone of trust. He's not trouble-free from chapter 13 by any means as you read it, but there's this sort of element, uh, there's sort of a hint of, of trust creeping in to what Job is saying. And we really see this significantly in chapter 19 because in chapter 19 verses 25 to 27 we get to some of Job's most famous and probably most well-loved verses because in these verses Job appears to confidently express a belief in the afterlife and a belief in a future redeemer. Let me read chapter 19 verses 25 to 27. Job says, in the midst of his suffering, I know that my redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. The I know that my Redeemer lives is is very famous. If if you're familiar with Handel's Messiah, you may know that I think it's in part three of the work, one of the sopranos basically starts to sing a version of verses 25 and 26. I know that my Redeemer liveth and he shall stand, stand at the latter day upon the earth and though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I'll see God. Pretty much word for word from Job, isn't it? And what the writer of Handel's Messiah, because I'll let you in on a secret, Handel didn't actually write the words. One of his friends wrote the words, Handel wrote the music, but presumably Handel agreed with all the words. Anyway, Handel's Messiah, uh, they take these verses to point forward to Jesus, who of course is who it ultimately points forward to, because Jesus is the one who will come and redeem his people as he stands upon the earth, and the person who will allow Christians, followers of Jesus, to experience eternal life. So Job, at this point, seems to believe in the future Redeemer, life after death. Now, if you're reading through Job, it's interesting because in chapter 14, um, he seems to express sort of an element of uncertainty about the afterlife. But by the time we get to chapter 19, he seems to be quite assured about it. And can I say, what a a difference that would make. You see, having hope in a future life with God transforms how we experience suffering in the present. Because for many people, life in the present is pain and then you die. If you're an atheist, uh, life is just random suffering and future oblivion. That's how the atheist uh, would have to think about it. So Richard Dawkins describes the suffering in the world as looking like pitiless indifference. You suffer? Well, the world is pitiless indifference. That's just the way it is. And another atheist, Bertrand Russell, who I I like to give this quote of his because I think it's quite illuminating and probably very honest. The atheist Bertrand Russell wrote or said, Brief and powerless is man's life. On him 
and all his race, the slow shore doom falls pitiless and dark. That's an atheist's view of, I guess, life and the hereafter. By contrast, the Christian who suffers, still suffers, but knows that God is sovereign, that God is good and that they can look forward to a new creation. Quite a different perspective. Now, how is it that Job came to believe this in chapter 19? Well, we're not really told, but ultimately it must have been revealed to him in some way by God. Now, it didn't take away Job's pain because we read after chapter 9 and he's still suffering, he's still grieving, he's still going through a hard time, but it must have helped. And similarly, I'd suggest today that as Christians, if we're Christians, reflecting on a future eternity with God will help us. But I don't think we should expect that it should make us cheerful when we're perhaps grieving the death of someone or cheerful when we're experiencing the loss of something else or we're experiencing chronic pain or whatever it is. I'm sure it will help us that we shouldn't expect that it's going to take away all the grief and pain. That's just part of life. I think it's something which provides us with hope in the darkness, assistance as we're struggling. And these are truths which have sustained many desperately sick, persecuted and grieving people over the years and I think it would have helped Job as well. So let me conclude. Amidst suffering in this life, Job and we ourselves can cling to this hope. Our future is not one of darkness and death but our future is one of light and life. And as Job says in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 19, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you so much for Job and and the teaching in Job and the teaching in Scripture. And Lord, we know that uh, suffering is intense and complicated and real and sometimes it was worse at some times than others. But Lord, we do thank you for the truths we can read in scriptures. We know that suffering will ultimately vanish for Jesus is for your people. We also know that you have suffered. But also we are encouraged uh, by the words of Job uh, that, that he knew that his Redeemer lived as we do too and he knew that he would one day see God as we do too. Lord, we pray that this will provide uh, a glimmer of hope or even more than a glimmer of hope as we go through t- hard times. We pray that we would remember this truth and trust it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.